Okay, welcome back. We're going to kick off our afternoon session with uh, Dr. Glenn Treesman, who you've already met and most of you know. Uh, Glenn is a professor of psychiatry uh, at Johns Hopkins. He also functions uh, on his rounds and practice as an internist, which is very refreshing. Uh, likes to take care of his own patients when they're in the hospital. Um, will get a consult when he needs one, but a lot of times he doesn't because he's a kind of consummate physician and prides himself on that. Usually he's here talking to us about either um, recreational substance abuse or depression or other psychiatry of HIV. But today in light of the uh, exploding epidemic of opioid use that we're all encountering and all of a sudden people have gotten to the signal that, hmm, maybe there's something we should do about, we've asked uh, Glenn to come talk to us about where did this epidemic come from? And I think you're going to, if you don't know this already, you're going to be surprised at the uh, complicit nature of how we uh, played a major part in the opioid epidemic and where we are today. So, Glenn, welcome. Back. Thank you, Dr. Sag. Thank you, everybody. I'm going to stay down here if that's okay. So, um, this is one of my many I'm really angry about something talks. <laughs> Guys admitted to my service last summer, actually last fall, um, been in a wheelchair for 15 years due to very severe neuropathy of his legs. And he was on 36 milligrams of intrathecal Dilaudid. And during the escalation of his Dilaudid, the pain that was in his legs has spread to his arms and his chest. <clears throat> he spends all day long lying on the floor of his house uh, doing artwork and watching TV. Um, and can tolerate the wheelchair only for about an hour to an hour and a half at the time. And he came in, and I said, well, when the pain spread to your arms, what did they do? Did they get biopsies to see if you had neuropathy of the arms? He said, no, they just went up on my opiates. So he had an intrathecal pump pumping in 36 milligrams of Dilaudid into his central nervous system a day. Let me tell you the translation, okay? One milligram of intrathecal Dilaudid is 300 milligrams of oral Dilaudid. Okay? So he's on 14,000 milligrams plus or minus of oxycodone a day. 14,000 milligrams. It would be like you get up in the morning and you just shovel pills into your mouth all day long and you couldn't get to this dose. If you did nothing but eat oxycontin morning till night, you couldn't get this much oxycontin into you that this guy's on. And his pain is worse. Now we detoxified him. We got him out of the wheelchair. He left walking. Um, his kids had never seen him walk, came to at Christmas time, and he went to the door and opened it for them. Um, and I was irritated by this case because I thought, what person went from 30 to 36 milligrams of intrathecal Dilaudid when the pain was worse at 30 than it had been at 24? And he's the same guy who went up from 24 to 30, which is, was accurate but insane. We have come to believe that nobody should ever have any problems in their life. Life should be pain-free, trouble-free, and totally comfortable. And that is nuts. So I'm going to take you through the history of this opiate epidemic and where it came from. And I want you to know it didn't come from doctors. 
It came from the culture. Just like Cold Spring Harbor, which started eugenics, ultimately resulted in the Holocaust. The idea of cleaning up the gene pool. An overvalued idea. We sterilized lots of people in this country, but we didn't kill anybody. But in Germany, they took that Cold Spring Harbor idea of cleaning up the gene pool and ran with it. But it started here in the U.S. We're a place where fad starts. <laughs> this is the fad country. And the fad in 1980 that nobody should be uncomfortable, nobody should ever have any pain, it's just crazy. So um, that's what I'm going to talk about. Um, I gave a paid lecture for Gilead. Actually, it's a, I guess it's a consultancy officially. Um, so that very much will, uh, will affect everything I'm going to tell you. Since they don't make, they don't make narcotics and I prescribe psychiatric medicines. Um, so I just want to describe this epidemic and name some factors that helped make it go and talk about the consequences of uh, the epidemic. So there's been several opiate epidemics in the U.S. The first one was really documented was in the late 1800s, mostly uh, upper middle class women who were in, uh, in homes where there was lots of resources and they were taking um, a tincture of opia and opiates and, and uh, other uh, opiates. Um, laudanum was the main drug that was used. And that spread in the early 1900s into immigrants. And there was a massive opiate epidemic. We have no data about how much, but a lot. And it resulted in laws prohibiting the use of opiates and regulating opiates and making them a controlled substance and ultimately making them a very controlled substance. Um, and then there was relatively low opiate use in the United States, except in a couple of populations, until around 1960, when people said, you know, painkilling is a, is a human right. This was an idea that started here but went to the UN. The UN said opiates are a human right. And uh, in 1970, just 10 years later, Nixon says we have the most heroin addicts in the world and declared his war on drugs. It's unclear how many people were really using heroin in 1970, but a lot. And it was a result, again, of this idea that everybody should get narcotics if they want them or need them. Um, so from 2000 to 2014, half a million people have died of drug overdoses, 78 deaths per day. Uh, the overdoses from prescription opiate pain are driving the 15-year increase in overdose deaths. Since 1999, we've quadrupled the amount of prescribed opiates, and we've quadrupled the amount of deaths. Um, we use 99% of the world's hydrocodone, 80% of the world's oxycodone, and 65% of the world's hydromorphone in this country, with a trivial number of people, by the way. That's because there's no pain anywhere but in the United States, right? Uh, there are 10 million people in 2005 on chronic daily opioids. It's gone up since then. And, the, and, and, and an ESDA study uh, estimated that 2.1 million Americans are addicted to non-prescription opioids. Um, so these are opioids that are, that are not prescribed for them, but are prescribed by, for somebody else. Um, now this is uh, 2000 to 2014. Deaths involving opiates, um, and then the various subcategories of opiates. Um, this one is heroin. Whoop! This is when we started curtailing prescriptions of narcotics, and this shoots up. Um, so this is a timeline. I made this timeline. Um, I'm going to whip you through it. Um, this is the, it starts in 1980 uh, with a letter in the New England Journal that oh, addiction is rare in patients treated with narcotics followed by this study by Portnoy and Foley. Um, 
the opiates are safe in use. At that time, cocaine was regularly used by about 5 million people and about 500,000 heroin users in 1984. Uh, morphine extended release. The, 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 you know, it said MS cotton, but we can't say that. So morphine extended release was approved in 1987. And then a little known paper in Scientific American, which had a huge impact on our, our practice, even though a lot of people don't know this paper, a Tragedy of Needless Pain in 1990. So this is uh, Porter and Jick's Addiction Rare in Patients Treated with Narcotics in New England Journal. This is cited over 700 times now in Google Scholar is probably the most cited pain patient paper in the history of, of pain treatment. That's the whole paper. <laughs> of 39,000 hospitalized medical patients who were consecutively monitored, uh, 11,000 received narcotics, only four cases of reasonably well-documented addiction in patients who had no history of addiction. They excluded patients with a history of addiction, of course. Um, we conclude that despite widespread use of narcotics in hospitals, Development addiction is rare. That's their conclusion from this quick look. Look, they have two citations. Um, that's it. That's the whole paper. You have now read the whole paper. This is followed up by this paper from Portnoy. Um, a case series of 38 patients, no, uh, no standard opioid treatment used, uh, multiple different diagnoses. They measured personality tests. They followed four years. And what they basically said is, Chronic opiates used for cancer pain without too much abuse or long-term problem. No evidence of chronic use in non-cancer patients. That is, if you give people opiates, they don't tend to use them chronically. That's what they. And this was 38 patients. That's a huge number. Based on that, cited 500 times in Google Scholar now. Um, and it, people said, "Wow, we're we're under treating pain patients." Now there were a couple of papers in that same time course that showed that if you were non-white and non-male, that you got less pain medicines than if you were white and male. And people said, poor people, vulnerable populations are getting undertreated for pain in hospitals. Um, these are those two papers I just showed you and the number of citations per year. What do you think? Wow, right? People are saying that these papers convince, I mean, think about your HIV drug use. Would either of those papers help you pick what drug to use? We changed our entire prescribing practices based on those papers. Um, so around that same time, this is uh, 89, uh, this term pseudo-addiction came out in a paper saying that people who look like they're addicted when they're on pain meds, they aren't really addicted. It's pseudo-addiction. There are 224 papers that use pseudo-addiction as one of the primary words. None attempt to validate the concept of pseudo-addiction or explain what it is. 206 papers cite the concept of matter-routine acceptance. Only 33 had any data of all, and none of those questioned the concept or validated it. There's no validation of this idea of pseudo-addiction. In fact, people who are pseudo-addicted are addicted. They're not, there's nothing pseudo about it. If somebody uses a fake name, forges a prescription, goes into a drugstore and pays cash for oxycodone, that's not normal. This paper by Ronald Melzack, who's a researcher, came out in 1990, and contrary to popular belief, the authors says morphine taken solely for the control of pain is not addictive. And yet, patients worldwide continue to be undertreated and suffer unnecessary agony. Now, he makes no distinction between chronic pain and acute pain, between the 
centrally mediated pain, peripheral pain. No distinction between neuropathy pain, phantom limb pain, or any of the other kinds of pain. Nothing about sympathetically maintained pain syndromes. Just if you're suffering, it's tragedy. Um, So uh, evidence that pain was undertreated included this 1981 paper saying uh, more Caucasians get pain. 94, JAMA studies show that white patients having bone fractures in the ED got more analgesics than Latinos. And in 95, Atlanta paper showed that white patients got pain and relief in emergency rooms compared with African Americans. These fueled the fire. These papers were not big deals, by the way, but they were made big deals of in the press. They were crammed down everybody's throat. Um, this is very important. Um, so then we go to 95, pain is a vital sign. I'll talk about it. The VA adopts pain is a vital sign. Oxycodone, this is oxy-extended release, um, also called some other name, um, approved in 1996. The Joint Commission on Pain recommends the pain measurement for all patients in 96. Purdue provides 20,000 educational programs. Fed Federation of State Medical Board supports opiate use in 98. Purdue provides 34,000 one-month oxycodone prescriptions coupons, and Purdue curtails the promotion in 2002 because it's getting out of control even for them. American Pain Society says pain is a vital sign. They used a panel of high-powered physiologists, all full professors nationally. They compared breathing, cardiac disease, heart attacks, pulselessness with pain. It turns out it's a vital sign. That's why it was added, not because it was political. This is an example of the misuse of terminology that has a very specific meaning, vital signs, meaning you're alive, because without them you're not alive, right? No pulse, no blood pressure, no breathing, you're dead, okay? Pulse, blood pressure, breathing, at least you're alive, right? We don't know what's gonna happen, but right now, you're still alive. Pain doesn't fit that at all. American Pain Society says it's a vital sign. Why? because we want you to give more pain medicines. Because obviously pain's a bad thing. So um, proposed by the President of the American Pain Society in 1995, adopted by the VA and the Joint Commission within one year. And um, these little questionnaires, while you're in the hospital, did they give you enough pain medicines, become part of standard operating procedure in hospitals. In 97, the American Pain Society who hates the American Academy of Pain Medicine and never agrees on anything that the one other one says. These two organizations cannot be put in the same room at the same time. They're immiscible like water and oil. If you belong to both of them, when you go to the meeting, they kill you. Um, <coughs> they enjoy a, a one-time consensus statement. Pain is often managed inadequately despite ready availability of effective treatments. Uh, what effective treatments? Current information and experience suggest that most Many commonly held assumptions need modification. That is, that opiates are addictive. That's a common assumption that needs modification. Accepted principles of practice should be used. Opiates should be promulgated. And the principles of good medical practice should guide prescribing of opiates. Well, I agree with this last one. Um, unfortunately, I don't agree with their interpretation of that last one. Um, this is when uh, MS Cotton comes on the market, extended release morphine sulfate. And um, this, it, that's in 1984, right? And this is the money that was spent on promoting it. Um, the white bar, I'm sorry, the MS counts the white bars. This is duragesic uh, fentanyl patches, right? And then this is the money spent on marketing uh, oxy uh, extended release, oxy XR or oxycontin, right? Look at that. 
Now, why did, they, why did they spend all that money? Because they recognized that we were ready. Everything was perfectly set up. And part of the reason I wrote this talk is one of my colleagues at a talk said, well, obviously, Purdue Pharmaceuticals, who really did help fuel this, this fire, um, was responsible for the opiate epidemic. They were not. They didn't make pain a vital sign. Pain became a vital sign before any of the, before OxyContin got on the market. This is uh, total sales and prescriptions for oxycodone extended release, 96 to 2002. Here's the sales, 44 million, 1,536 1, million, um, and uh, percentage increases, 192% increase. Pretty good. Um, the Federation of State Medical Boards, not to be outdone, said uh, they released a recommended policy assuring pet you won't face regulatory actions, even prescribing large amounts of narcotics as long as it's the course of medical treatment. We've gone back on this now all of a sudden. So if you're prescribing large amounts of narcotics now, watch out, right? But we said it's part of our policy. Now, the American Pain Society said that wasn't good enough. They wanted the Federation of State Medical Boards to make under-treatment of pain punishable. You'll lose your license if you don't give people narcotics. Uh, the Federation of American of State Medical Boards didn't go for that. So they didn't make it illegal not to prescribe opiates. But they tried. Really? Um, I've showed you this paper till you're sick of it, but increased patient satisfaction correlates with increased mortality. In 2012, 50,000 patients showed that increasing patient satisfaction correlates with increasing mortality, right? This should give us pause about this patient satisfaction stuff, except that six months later, Medicare starts paying people based on patient satisfaction scores, meaning the more your patients die, the more you get paid. This has not gone on since Germany. This is bad. I'm, and by the way, our dean said, well, that's only one study. I said, show me your study. If this was a drug, you wouldn't let me give it to anyone. You're doing this to everyone. It's an easy thing to measure, so we measure it. We like basing outcomes on height. This is uh, from 1960 when the UN said opiates are right to 2010, all drug overdoses in the black bar um, and alcohol only in the gray bar. Um, and then this is my little time course I just showed you. So way before um, oxycodone extended release becomes on the market, this epidemic is well underway. Now, Purdue gave, gave people a one-month supply of oxycodone extended release uh, to uh, 34,000 people. One month is plenty to get addicted to oxycodone extended release. And I wonder why they picked a month. Anyway, um, you can see that just fueled, threw gasoline on this fire. And um, deaths have steadily risen along with that to 28,000. Um, now, did we know this was a problem? These are, this is from, this is published in 2009, but this data was out there in 2005. Overall test results for a million urine tox screens, a million. Illicit drugs, 10%. Non-prescribed medication, 30%. The medication being prescribed is not in the urine, 37%. The drug level is lower than expected, 15%. The drug level is higher, these are my patients, 27%. Nobody said, whoa, this is bad, right? 
This is drug deaths and motor vehicle deaths. Look, we beat them. This is in an era of texting. <laughs> we still beat them. Now, when I was treating patients back in the good old days, because I work in an HIV clinic, I would get letters from insurance companies saying, we can pay $12,000 for this person's antiretroviral drugs, but we cannot pay $40 for their Prozac. Um, and uh, for their, uh, sorry, for their fluoxetine. Um, I can't help it, I'm chemically altered. So um, oxycodone XR was very expensive. It was $176. Um, and insurance and Medicaid formularies began saying, you have to use methadone because it's only $8 a month as a preferred pain drug. Now, methadone is a complicated drug. It has very complicated kinetics. If you put people on any dose of methadone, if you titrate them up slowly, you can go up to 500 milligrams. It doesn't matter. No problem. Taking PRN, big problem. Because the, the pharmacodynamics of methadone metabolism are very complex. And if you're changing the dose every day and not taking it as a consistent, once a day at the same time every day dose, you can get very bad things happening. So this is the growth of methadone use for pain and the number of methadone overdoses in the US. Um, this is the death rate caused by any single prescription painkiller. Look at methadone. Why? Because if you take this as a pain medicine, PRN, you're much more likely to die than from these other drugs which have fairly predictable pharmacodynamics. And so um, although this saved a lot of money, it didn't really save money for these guys. So who did it? Who should we blame? Well, right now we're blaming you guys, blaming doctors. It must be your fault. Um, I blame the American Pain Society, the VA, JCO, who says we didn't do it, Purdue, who said maybe we did it, the insurance industry, who said not us, and the doctors. So Joint Commission says we didn't do it. They wanted to clarify misperception of their pain standards in 2016. The Joint Commission's patients are unfairly blamed for the prescription of opioids because of misperceptions, said David Baker. Um, here's the misconceptions. The, 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 pain, the Joint Commission endorses pain as a vital sign. They say we don't. I say they did. I have, I have quotes. Joint Commission requires pain assessment for all patients. They said we stopped requiring that in 2013. My wife's hospital got dinged for not pain, doing pain monitoring last year. Um, the Joint Commission requires that pain be treated till the pain scale reaches zero. Not true, but if the patient complains they didn't get adequate pain control, you get dinged. The Joint Commission standard pushed doctors to prescribe opiates. Not true, although you can be suspended, suspended from, your hospital can be suspended from practice if you don't give adequate pain control. And the Joint Commission pain standards should cause this sharp rise in opiate epidemics. It's just a coincidence that the Joint Commission joined in on this. Um, uh, this is uh, Dennis O'Leary uh, back in 2000. Pain control is a problem because of confusion about who's responsible for it, general lack of knowledge. Um, pain management will be a patient right, an education and training, a measurement issue, placing it on a 10-point scale. No, no, they didn't require it. Um, and safe management issue. This all adds up to high, pain is the fifth vital sign. Not them, they didn't say it. And a shift from traditional pain control management from physician decision to a systematic approach. That is, instead of you picking how much pain medicines the patient gets, you have to use rating scales to pick how much pain medicine the patient gets. This is Jayco. 
Um, they published with a guy that Purdue paid for publishing about some clinicians have inaccurate, exaggerated concerns about addiction. And they said their standards didn't encourage to, to physicians and hospitals to increase prescription. She says, I think that's a very distorted and not helpful explanation of what's going on, said Anna McKee, their chief medical officer. Right after this, this was a table of the 7th International Convention, Conference on Pain Management and Chemical Dependency. There's an ad for Oxy. And there's a JCO pain standards. Are you ready for the JCO pain standards? Which they were giving away at the oxycodone extended release table. You need these, so you'll use this. Seems pretty straightforward. All right, play this. This is off their website last month. Henry, how's that knee today? Hmm, looks like the swelling's gone down. The ice has been helping, but I think the throbbing pain would subside if I could take my medicine, but my arthritis is acting up. My hand is so stiff I can't get the bottle open. I didn't sleep very well. A pounding migraine woke me up at 2 a.m. Thankfully, my medication helped. What? But of course, it has some side effects, like constipation. Which migraine medicine causes constipation? If you have a patient with an acute migraine, you'd of course give them a constipating medicine, right? This is on JCO now. And they say, we're not encouraging people to use narcotics. You're accusing them for migraine. Go ahead. <laughs> Won't be going to the bathroom till I say so. Describing your pain to your doctor. They don't say you have important. to use pain rating they scales. They ask you about your pain and may show you a pain scale to find the best way to treat it. <laughs> if you're in pain, don't tough it out. Don't tough it out. Take oxy. You'll feel better and heal faster. Some medicines have side effects. Ask your doctor if there's one that is better for you. 27,000 deaths. Sometimes your pain can be treated with physical therapy, acupuncture, or massage. Aches and pains aren't fun. Speak up about your pain. With the right treatment, oh, you can leave your pain behind. Oh, bye. You can leave your pain behind. That would be a zero, right, if you left it behind. These guys have been telling you how to practice medicine and then blaming you when it doesn't go well. Now, doctors being pressured to prescribe. This is a study published in 2016, so it's a recent study. 71% of doctors in uh, northern Florida and southern, southern Georgia said they uh, prescribe opiates to avoid administrative regulatory criticism, 60% to avoid negative impact on joint commission surveys, 46% avoid decreased patient satisfaction scores and decreased reimbursement because it's based on patient satisfaction scores. And 40% said either they or one of their colleagues had been formally disciplined for failure to acquiesce to a patient's request for an opiate prescription. Who's running the show? You guys or the administrator guys? This is the guy who said he did it. This is, um, this is Russell Portnoy, who was uh, very involved in the American Pain Society decision to make it a vital sign and uh, here are quotes. He said, I gave innumerable lectures in the late 1980s and early 1990s about addiction that weren't true. Argued that opiates were a gift from nature and were being forsaken because of opiophobia. In fact, at a conference where Dr. Portnoy and I were uh, at the same conference and gave talks the same day, Dr. Portnoy told me I had opiophobia. Um, at the time, it had all the makings of a religious movement. Dr. Portnoy disclosed relationships with Endo, Abbott, Kef By the way, these companies all make opiates. Um, and he admits that he did it. He says it's my fault as much as anybody's. Um, but he's, he admits it. Nobody else admits it. 
Purdue didn't admit it, but the court said they did it, and they had to pay, plead guilty and pay $675 million. Uh, and then they've had to pay several other suits since then. <coughs> uh, by the way, these guys really, uh, really look happy about their involvement. The insurance companies say, who me? Insurance companies just sent me a letter saying that I had prescribed an expensive drug, Romelteon, for sleep. Shouldn't I be using a benzodiazepine? I sent them back the graph of benzodiazepine overdose deaths um, and misuse in the United States um, in my letter saying, I think we should use my drug, but thank you for the input. This is a study, 4,200 studies reviewed, 39 studies included. There are no randomized controlled studies comparing long-term opiates to placebo. None. Zero. Never been studied. There are many observational studies, and in them, patients find opiates ineffective and have many side effects. In these studies, there is an increased dose-dependent risk of abuse, of overuse, of fractures, and of MI. And the strength of evidence for chronic opiate use was rated no higher than low in any study. Now, acute pain and chronic pain are different. In acute pain, you want a narcotic. You break your leg, you fall off the ski slope, you want a narcotic. You have a kidney stone, I've had a kidney stone, you want a narcotic. You have a toothache, maybe not. I can't tell you how many patients come into my clinic per month saying, I have a toothache and I can't get to see the dentist till next week, can I have some oxycodone? I say, for a toothache? CDC guidelines have just come out say, saying when to initiate or continue opiates for chronic pain, um, opiate selection, dosage, duration, follow-up, and discontinuation, assessing the risk and addressing the harms of opiate use. They're saying you shouldn't do it, but they're not saying how to not do it. And in fact, even while saying you shouldn't do it, they're saying how to do it, how to initiate it, and how to continue it for chronic pain. Now, this is, this is the CDC, and this is in the sl two slides after the study showing there's no indication for opiates for chronic pain, no evidence for it. If this were a drug, they wouldn't say how to do it. There's no evidence for antivirals in this virus. However, this is how to give them. You just wouldn't do that. And this is all a result of political pressure. So we're going to cut back. This is the CDC websites. They say we're going to cut back. We're going to cut in New York, 75% decrease. In Florida, 50% decrease. Tennessee, a 36% decrease. And the action in Florida was they said people have to stop using oxycodone specifically. Okay? From 2014, death increases by 22.7%. It's a CDC data point, by the way. 2012, there's much less oxycodone prescribing. But in 2014, there's a 22.7% increase in deaths. What do you think that's from? This is oxycodone prescribing. This is deaths. This is deaths dropping off. Fell by 52% after years of increases in deaths. Oxycodone deaths fell by 52%. However, this is heroin deaths in Florida, fentanyl deaths in Florida, morphine deaths in Florida, and other deaths in Florida. Look, Xanax doesn't change, cocaine doesn't change, oxycodone doesn't change. <laughs> the other ones change. Which is more dangerous, do you think? Oxycodone or heroin produced in somebody's lab 
which may or may not have fentanyl, carfentanil, or sufentanil in it, which is why there's more deaths from it. It's more dangerous than oxycodone. Florida didn't say, look, we're going to start a program of educating physicians about how to transition people gradually off opiates and gradually on to other treatments and help them learn how to do it. And if they have difficulty, we're to back them up with experts. No, just say, stop using it. Tell the doctors how to practice, and you'll only get a 22% increase in deaths. Um, so these are states that had a statistically significant increase in opiate deaths uh, from 2014 to 2015, even though these are all places where we were decreasing the prescription for oxycodone. This is an ad for, from Bayer Pharmaceuticals for heroin, the cheapest specific relief for coughs. Well, guess what? It has become a specific relief for coughs. You die, no more cough. <laughs> this is the median price of heroin per pure gram since I was, a, uh, since I was starting in 82 to now, a tenfold decrease. Heroin has become cheap, just like that ad says. It is the cheapest narcotic you can get right now. It is much cheaper than oxycodone. So, people are using it. And guess what it's doing? This is overdose from heroin deaths uh, since 2001 to 2014. Look how steep it becomes in 2010 when people start to recognize this opiate epidemic. And all of you know about this, Scott County, Indiana, one year, 2014 to 2015, um, there were 181 patients newly infected with HIV. Almost 90% were injecting uh, extended relief uh, oxymorphone. 92 were co-infected with hepatitis C. 98.7 had sequences that were highly regulated. This is the epidemic. A guy notes the cluster right there, calls the CDC. Everybody gets involved. They start a needle exchange program right here. And they, the needle exchange program uh, has, by there, dispensed 77,000 liters. No new cases for months. And this is the, this is the genotyping uh, polymerase sequencing. Um, this one spot responsible for these cases. If there was ever a, if there was ever a thing for prep. <laughs> I want to go give that guy prep a year ago. Um, and this is the partner tracing. And you've seen this in Colorado Springs studies. Some of you will remember that data of this starburst pattern of spread of HIV. And this is a place where you want to intervene. This is being done because in these little towns and places, suddenly you can't get opiates. People have been prescribing opiates for people for years in these places. We tend to think about urban centers for opiates. But let me tell you, in the rural America, a lot of people are on narcotics for chronic pain because doctors finally got educated by these endless programs about how you've got to treat pain, treat pain, treat pain. Pain's a vital sign. So I've been screaming about this since this started. What we knew and what we tried to tell people, uh, this is an ad in 1981, cocaine is non-addictive because there's no withdrawal from it. That was the message in 81, um, which is why people like cocaine. There was no addiction to it. Um, this is your brain. This is your brain actually on drugs. Remember, this is your brain on drugs. And all these drugs work in this ascending mesolimbic dopamine pathway. So in your brain is a reward circuit I call it the yeah circuit. And it's what gives you a reward when you do something fun. So if you go out tonight and you get something great for dinner here in Washington, DC, or you love to play sports and you shoot a 30-footer and it swishes right through the basket, or you hit a hole in one, SAG tells me 
that when he golfs, he always has at least one hole in one every 18 holes. Um, and when you get that hole in one, you get a little, yeah, right? You're supposed to get that. And that chemical is dopamine. It goes right there. And all known addictive drugs work on that pathway. And depression turns that pathway off. So normal things don't give you a yeah when you're depressed, but drugs still do. So this pathway is the pathway where all these drugs work. And um, you can um, take a little mousy, put him in this cage, teach him that when he presses this bar, he gets food, and then teach him that when he presses this bar, he gets drug. And they will press that lever to get any addictive drug that's addictive to humans, with the possible exception of PCP and ketamine. They don't like PCP and ketamine. And there's a question about whether those are really addictive or just abused. We can argue about it later. And then you train him that there's a saline lever and a drug lever, and he can tell the difference between addictive drugs and non-addictive drugs and various other things. Um, and then you can say, um, how hard will you push this lever? How many times will you push this lever to get a drug? Cocaine's number one. Opiates are number two. Uh, I'm sorry. Cocaine and stimulants are number one. Opiates are number two. And alcohol and benzodiazepines are number three. With ratios of use to abuse for stimulants about one in three, for opiates about one in eight, for alcohol about one in 20. About one in 20 people who use alcohol regularly get addicted to it. About one in eight opiate users, about one in three stimulant users. Um, so here's my little mousy, and you can put him in this cage. And you can say, when that light comes on, if you press this lever, you're going to get, the, in this case, cocaine. And when that light comes on, if you press this lever, you're going to get an electric shock. See the little metal bars? Two shock generator. Okay? Now, a normal mousy will not press that lever when that light's on. But he'll press that lever when this light's on. And then you turn on both lights. What will the mousy do? So about 85% of mousies will not touch that lever. About 15% will tolerate the electric shock to get the, lever, to get the drug. However, if you leave them in there longer, or you put more concentrated drug, or you, or you let them do it more, more and more of the mousies will press the lever. Um, and so more and more mousies get addicted in terms of taking, tolerating electric shock to get drug if you use higher concentrations for longer times. If you get up to 36 milligrams of intrathecal dilaudid, that mousey will eat that lever if necessary. Now, see the little speaker? So you can play Beatles music while the mousey's doing this, or you can do other things to him. And so um, if, you, oops, if you turn this thing off, after a few tries, that mousey will just ignore that lever. He'll stay in there for a year, and he'll not press that lever. Take him out of the cage for two weeks and put him back in. Even though the thing is off, there's no lights, he'll go over and hit the lever a couple times. What if you take him out for six months? What do you think happens? Each successive amount of time he's out of that cage, when he gets back in, he presses the lever more. That's this curve. So the longer he's out of the cage, the more likely he is to try the lever when he gets back in the cage. This is your model of extended relapse in our patients, right? We knew about this during this opiate epidemic. So if you take people off, months later, they're going to try and get back on, just like our mousy. And so if you take these and translate them into these black bars, but then you say, okay, we're going to play Beatles music when you do this, and then you put them in here without turning on the lights, and you play the Beatles music, he'll press the lever way more. 
if you take him and you stress him and then put him in the cage, he'll press the lever more. And if you take him and you give him a tiny little dose of the medicine, not enough to get him to press the lever and put him in this cage, he'll press the lever. So what gets people to relapse? Stress, re-exposure, and cues, all the things we teach. Now, <clears throat> a patient who comes to your clinic, and um, they're used to getting opiates there. And uh, when they don't get opiates, they have a temper tantrum. And uh, the more temper tantrums they've had, the more opiates they've gotten. And now they come, and you're the new doctor in the clinic. <laughs> it's like, who trained you to behave like this? Oh, your last doctor. Um, <clears throat> One of my patients walking down Monument Street, he's walking totally normally. He comes into the clinic. I said, you know, I saw you walking Monument Street. You walk normally. He said, yeah. I said, well, when you're here, you limp. He said, no, I don't limp. I said, walk down the hall. I limp. I said, yeah, we've trained you to do that. Without ever telling you, or with your doctors out noticing, when you don't limp, we don't give you narcotics. When you limp, we go up on the narcotics. When you go not limping, we go down on the narcotics. They don't know that they're doing that, and you don't know that they're doing it. We have trained you to limp, inadvertently, by accident. But you've had all this pressure on you to give everybody narcotics and to say pain is a vital sign and to say everybody should be pain-free without any data. <clears throat> so here are the relapse triggers. Drug exposure, stress, environmental cues, like my clinic. And this is the actual mousy. So this is a normal mousy. And when the green light's on, he will put his nose through there because he's going to get drug. And when the blue light's on, he's going to get electric shock. No way, right? And when the green light's on, it's addicted mousy, or this is a rat. Um, and when the electric shock light's on, he'll put his nose through there anyway. Get electric shock. So bad stuff, right? So what are the take-home messages? What do I want you to know? Number one, I want you to know opiates are addictive, despite papers to the contrary that were ridiculous. Two, longer exposure and higher doses increase the likelihood of addiction. So five milligrams of oxycodone three times a day is not nearly as likely to get people into trouble as 30 milligrams three times a day. There's virtually no evidence that chronic pain is helped by chronic opiates. No, virtually none. There are patients, you have a patient in your clinic, who when you put them on five milligrams of oxycodone four times a day, went back to work and has been doing fabulously for years on it and has never abused it. You have a patient like that. Would they have gotten better without it? Probably. There's good evidence for other modalities of pain treatment, but they're more expensive, more time-consuming, slower, and more clinician-dependent and are poorly reimbursed. So when I take care of patients, I see them a lot, I try all kinds of neuromodulators. I get them to go to physical therapy. They hate me the whole time. Eventually, their pain gets better. Eventually, I find something that works. But it's a year of work. And they keep saying to me, I know the narcotics work. When you came to me, you were living in a refrigerator box. They weren't working. You just felt better about living in a refrigerator box. That's not our goal. While the data overwhelmingly support the contention that vulnerable patients are more likely to get addicted, Anyone can get addicted. So this idea that you need to do better screening for patients before you give them opiates is nonsense. If a drug addict needs opiates, they need opiates, whether they're a drug addict or not. You just have to be more careful giving them to them. If they don't need opiates, I don't care what kind of patient they are, they shouldn't get opiates. This idea that we should only give opiates to certain people goes back to 1989. 
Certain people will get opiates and certain people won't. They either need opiates because they have a surgical fracture of their femur and they need opiates, or they don't need opiates. And this idea that the problem is you aren't screening enough or aren't thoughtful enough is nonsense. The problem is that we've confused chronic and acute pain, and we've told you how to treat patients when you knew better at the beginning. Oops. Oh, sorry. So the attempt to develop quick remedies like be more careful, just say no, stop using oxycodone, is fueling this new heroin epidemic. It is killing our patients. They're much more likely to die on heroin than on oxy. We know that. The only way to get them off oxy is to spend a year working with them, gradually taper them off, get them on neuromodulators, get them physical therapy, do all the things that help neuropathic pain, centrally mediated pain, complex regional pain syndrome, or five, we used to call it sympathetically maintained pain, which is actually a better name for it. <clears throat> all those things treatable. Chronic pain patients need careful evaluation and expert multidisciplinary treatment. I published a paper, 12 patients, who had um, uh, vasculitis for longer than 10 years, never diagnosed with chronic pain and sent to psychiatry, because they were obviously crazy. Integrated mental health and addictions treatment as part of a general practice and expertise in managing chronic pain has made this problem remediable in my clinic. It is, in a clinic with almost zero resources, we're managing these patients and we're getting them off opiates. They come in on opiates and we get them off, and they do really well. Why? Because this is a fixable problem. It's just expensive to fix, time-consuming to fix, and safer, better, and more in line with our goals as clinicians to fix. You've been told that you shouldn't make the decisions. You should let guidelines make the decision. You should let the American Pain Society make the decision. We are really responsible for what we do. Be a critical thinker. When they tell you pain is a vital sign, say, no, I remember what vital signs are. It's not a vital sign. And raise hell about it. I raise hell about it. But people say, well, you can't go against these things. Yes, go against these things. I have a slide of doctors who, during the Holocaust, killed their mentally ill patients. Try not to appear on one of those slides. When people tell you this is how medicine is supposed to be practiced, like Ezekiel Emanuel said in his article last, last month, say no. Medicine is practiced based on evidence, on careful thought, not on distorted facts and politically correct ideas, but based on real information and clinical judgment with experience behind it. And you will do fine. There will always be these fads. There will always be these quick fixes of people saying, patients have a lot of pain, so should we, give them, we should give them whatever they want and everything else. And you have to resist it. Your insurance company authorized me to take out one. You pick. This is my last take-home point. Right now, the way insurance, insurance companies work is this. They give them all the money for medical care in the United States, all of it, and then whenever they don't spend, they get to keep. What is their incentive for paying for care for your patients? Zero. I am the most expensive doctor at Hopkins in terms of how much money I spend on patients on the pain service. They stay the longest, they get the most. They're all getting physical therapy. They're all getting tapered off opiates. They're all getting all kinds of tests and being worked up extensively. They're all getting their G-tubes out and their TPN lines out and all the other stuff I do to get better. They walk after being in a wheelchair for 15 years and people give me a hard time constantly because they're not really interested in outcomes. 
They're interested in quarters and how much money you save them. And they've been telling me to save money since I was a medical student, and I haven't seen one cent of that money come back to patient care. It's not coming back to us. It's going to them. We should be aggressively advocating for our patients, especially our patients, who are the most misused, marginalized, and discarded. And they're discarded because they're poor, they're mentally ill, they're vulnerable, they're minorities, they're illegal immigrants, they're kids, they're old people. They have no voice. They have no one advocating for them in government who are advocating for these guys because they can lobby. The Willards across the street, that's the lobby. We have to lobby too. We have to lobby louder and harder. The data supports me. The data supports you. You're great at critically evaluating data. You are great at it. So when some fad comes along, like this one came along, don't buy it. And when they tell you to stop writing oxycodone for your patients, say, in the chart, I can't stop this guy because he'll use heroin. So I'm going to slowly taper him over a year, and I'm going to deploy these things. And then when the company says we can't authorize physical therapy, get that patient to write a letter, and you write a letter to the insurance commission saying, this guy was put on high-dose opiates because nobody wants to pay for real treatment. One letter won't mean a thing. Thousands of letters will mean a lot. Thanks a lot. Great. We have a few minutes for questions. I guess um, you, you began to address the kind of obvious big questions. Okay, so we're not going to use opiates, and uh, what can we do? Because there's a lot, still a lot of chronic pain out there. Right. Um, and, and what I'm hearing is that um, the modalities used to treat it take a lot of time and patience and energy. Um, and when you multiply that times a lot of patients in the clinic who have this, you get at least I get a little overwhelmed just thinking about how am I going to get all these people into physical therapy? How am I going to taper them all? How do I manage all that? Um, what are your suggestions in the real world of how to triage this and be effective with it? Well, th there's two points of view, two point elements to it. One is this. You're correct. This is a very intense problem. We have inadequate resources. And we need more resources. However, within my clinic, teaching... Um, teaching addictions counselors and nurse practitioners and PAs and other people how to manage pain and triaging them correctly, we can get people better. You do need some resources. You need physical therapy. You need to be able to get these things. It actually turns out that a lot of the patients who are on high-dose opiates, when you take them off, their pain goes away. Yeah. But people who have real neuropathy, they need hydrotherapy. You need to stimulate those recovering nerves to get them to recover. They need various other things. And you need experts, and there's not enough experts. Right. But I would point out that all the resources we need probably could be covered by just that one mother of all bombs they dropped. Yeah, Those, that's true. You know, we, we're cheap compared to alternatives. That's true. So one of the things we used in our clinic, and um, it's not really ready for prime time in terms of evidence, but it seems to be working, and that's peer counseling, where you take folks who had been on high-dose opioids, you, you work through the system, you get them off, and universally, at least in our experience, they say they feel better, feel a lot better. They think 30% reduction in pain. That's what the and, and, is. And reduction in pain. And then we pair them up with people who are still on opioids as we start to introduce 
those newer patients into the concept. And that support, hearing it from a peer, that yes, you can get through this, number one. Two, there's a, there's a light at the end of the tunnel and it's not a train, um, is very helpful. Do you yep. all do that? Yeah, we, so we, on our pain service, we have lots of patients who are in various stages of getting better and the people who are getting ready to leave tell the people who are coming in, my pain's down by 30% and I'm off all my narcotics and I'm walking now and the guy getting out of the wheelchair, I mean, we had, everybody was all excited about that. Right. And people say, if he can get better, I can get better. In the clinic, we do something a little different than what you're doing, but it's your, your idea is probably better. We have a thing I call waiting room group. Yeah. Where I will say to a patient, would you go out and talk to this guy? It's, it's a similar thing. And I make the other person wait about 20 minutes before I call them back. And by then, my patients had a chance to go out there and give them some feedback. So I was about to ask you about this, and there's a question more specifically about it. But you mentioned the perils of methadone. I think we all get that. Um, but Suboxone or uh, buprenorphine. Great drug. Um, yeah. And so tell us a little bit about that, especially when you pair it up with naltrexone and uh, what the advantages are in that approach. And then I have a question from the audience. Right. So <clears throat> um, Suboxone is a drug. You can't overdose on it, but it's a lot harder than methadone. It's tough to overdose on it. It's highly regulated, and you, therefore, can regulate it. Anybody in this room can pass the requirements to become a Suboxone prescriber. It's easier but, than By the way, why is that? Why is it we can prescribe Oxycontin without any type of training? And if you want to use buprenorphine, you've got to go through eight hours of, you know, rather have a... It's because methadone kills people, and people didn't, the regulatory people just couldn't be persuaded that there was a huge difference between using methadone maintenance and Suboxone maintenance. Having said that, there's a good thing about this training for Suboxone maintenance. What the people training you will say is, giving people Suboxone is not like giving them penicillin for pneumonia. They also need rehabilitation, group therapy. Suboxone has to be paired with requirements for rehabilitation. And what most people want to do is pay for Suboxone. The patient comes in and gets their Suboxone prescription for a week, and you see them once a week and give them a prescription, and then once a month. And that's not adequate. They need to go to groups. There's AA out there, NA out there. There's lots of recovery groups out there. There's lots of ways to help patients recover. And what I do is I say, I'm putting you on Suboxone, but now you'll be addicted to Suboxone. And I'm going to use that addiction to make you do stuff, just like your dealer did, except I'm not going to make you steal or lie. I'm going to make you go to work. And I'm going to make you get rehabilitated. You've seen me do this. Right. Um, and patients get that. They get that they're going to get addicted to a drug and that you're going to be the person, the only person who can give it to them. Um, Suboxone um, is a com combination of buprenorphine and um, naloxone. Yeah. So if you crush it up and shoot it, it just blocks itself. Um, so it also blocks the heroin. And so, uh, yeah, and also blocks the heroin. And, and buprenorphine is much stickier for the receptor than heroin and other opiates. So it's really hard to get an opiate high when you're on suboxone, which means that people go out and use, you can use all the heroin you want, I say to patients. They try it, they get nothing from it because it's blocked by the buprenorphine. So, which is a partial agonist. So, <clears throat> um, so I'm a big fan of buprenorphine, of Suboxone. Um, having said that, the person is still addicted to a drug, and ultimately what you really want is to get people free. But that can take five years. I don't know how So lots of questions. I've got about six minutes. I'm going to go through them fast. So quick question, quick answer. Mm -hmm. Here's a buprenorphine question. They check the urine levels. They're negative. So is there evidence of, is there any street value where they could be selling yep. it? got great street value and it gets sold all the time. 
And Why, so, if it doesn't have an, much of an effect? It has an effect. Oh, okay. You know, if you're, if you're sick and you're in withdrawal, Suboxone will get you out of it. Plus, there's a bunch of people on Suboxone out there who don't want to have to go to the program this week, so they buy Suboxone. They can get it on the street. And the people selling it often will use this money from the Suboxone yeah. to buy other things. Any false negative in the urine is it where it's... You know, Rare. Yeah. Okay. Uh, how do you treat addiction... Um, read this substitution I think that's what it said detox abstinence in other words when you when you're trying to get them off of off of their addictive substance just a quick roadmap so um, so it's so it depends on the patient and depends on the circumstances in the hospital we rapidly taper people off opiates and physical therapy trying neuromodulators all in one chunk on our chronic pain service in the clinic I taper people over a year it's a slow gradual taper it, Toward the end, they sometimes have to come in the hospital for a week to get off the last little bit, but most of them don't. And, it's a, and there's no hurry to get people off. I say, you want to go another month on this dose, that's fine, but then next month we're going down. And they come in next month prepared to go down, and because they've had an experience with you, they either fire you or they come in expecting to go down because they know what kind of doctor I am. And so you're, it's a gradual taper over a year, sometimes even 18 months, with trials of various other things that might be helpful. Usually patients can tell as they get down that their pain is getting better. Each time they go down, their pain is worse. Then two weeks later, their pain is better than it was before they went down. Mm. And they, they get that. Toward the, after a couple of months, they start to get it. You say, look, you don't have to agree with me. You just have to decide which of us is going to be the doctor. Yep. I think your previous comment answers this next question. Do you think buprenorphine is a fad that will fade? Nope. I think it's a great treatment for opiate Are there any strategies to have JACO remove the fifth vital sign assessment? Well, they are removing the fifth vital science. Not only are they removing it, they're saying they never did it. Um, the American Pain Society has come out formally and said pain is not a vital sign. Um, what, so, what advice do you give to clinics that wish to remove, uh, rewrite their pain management policies in light of what you were talking about? I think that you have to make the doctors responsible for the patients, not the policies. Every patient is different. If you want to have some person who reviews opiate management in that clinic, you've got to make sure that person is a more experienced clinician and not some administrator who really knows the cases and can say, in this case, I think you go faster, or in this case, yeah. you're doing great, and document that the person is thinking about it and doing it. All right, I love this question. How do you advise that was not me. Chronic, chronic pain management for sickle cell crisis? Oh, God, that's a, such a time. I knew that was, yeah. Great question. So. First of all, sickle cell crisis is a real crisis. If you're in more pain, unfortunately, that will mean more, uh, more um, anoxia, an, uh, an and more anoxia means more pain. So the, the activation of the pain pathway will stimulate the sympathetic nervous system, which will worsen the crisis. So <clears throat> what I advocate for people with uh, sickle cell disease is a program for when they come in in crisis for acute management of their crisis. They will be in the hospital until they achieve this goal. And for me, the goal usually is off opiates, if I can get that. For some people who've been on opiates for a long time, you're going to get IV Dilaudid while you're in the hospital, but you cannot be discharged on IV Dilaudid. You've got to be discharged on your base pain medicines. Whatever you came in on, that's what you've got to be down to before you go out. Single cell patients don't really love the hospital as a group. Um, and staying in the hospital to get IV Dilaudid gets tiresome after a while and then they'll go back down. Um, so we have a specialist, um, uh, Dr. Uh, 
Pat Carroll, who's, a, who's our sickle cell pain guy. He's a psychiatrist like me, trained with me, really good at chronic pain, and he works in the sickle cell clinic. And what he basically does is he figures out where we can get people to start with, let's say, four oxys a day, and, uh, and then um, he tapers them as much as he can. When they come in, they have a prescribed plan. They're going to get IV dilaudid at this dose until their pain crisis passes, and then they can't go out until they're back to their base dose. And so they get back to their base dose pretty quickly. Okay. And two quick questions. Uh, what's your opinion on antabuse in these settings? Is there any role for that? Uh, yeah, it's a good question. So I'll tell you when antabuse has worked for me and when it hasn't. If you give people daily antabuse every day, they tend to think they're cured of alcoholism and then they, they relapse. If you say, let me tell you what we're going to use antabuse for. Your wife is going to watch you take it before you go to a high trigger setting. Let's suppose you're going to a wedding where everybody's saying, want a drink? Need a drink. Here's a drink. Right? For I was going out to dinner with you, for instance. I always take, before I go out, I always take two, two antabuses, make sure that I won't drink. But, um, but it's, it's worked for me in that setting. There are occasional patients who stay on antabuse, are very reliable about it. One of them is a bar owner in Baltimore who's my patient. He takes antabuse in front of his wife every morning. He owns a bar. He does not drink. He is a serious recovering alcoholic. He goes to AA every day. He takes his antabuse every morning. His wife witnesses it. He has not had a drink in 15 years under my treatment. Mm -hmm. So for that guy, antabuse is great. Okay. Um, it's, it, what it does is defeat the impulse. If you want to drink again, you just hold your antabuse. He could cheek his antabuse. But if he cheeks his antabuse, there's paperwork that he's filled out that says he agrees to sell the family bar after three generations. He doesn't want to do that. So, mm -hmm. OK. Um, and the final question is, what is the mortality of opioid withdrawal if it's just zero? I mean, feel like they're going to die. You feel like you're going to die. So if you get really dehydrated from vomiting, you can die of dehydration. But it's really hard to die. Benzo withdrawal can be fatal. Alcohol withdrawal can be fatal. Barbiturate withdrawal can be fatal. Believe it or not, ambient withdrawal, drugs, and the Z And those drugs. are all due to seizure disorders? And right, and they cause seizures and, and, de and delirium tremens. So yeah. DTs are, can be fatal. But opiate withdrawal is just absolutely miserable. Having said that, there's a thing called conditioned withdrawal where if you put people through really miserable withdrawal over and over again, eventually, just seeing you, they'll go into withdrawal. And you can, con you can condition animals to have conditioned withdrawal without any opiate. I mean, once you've, once you've forced them to have withdrawal a bunch of times, you put them in that same cage, they'll vomit, have diarrhea, look like they're going through withdrawal, even though they aren't going through withdrawal. So because of that, I don't like to give people cold turkey treatments. Even if they want it, I say, that's not good for us. What's good for us, and everybody wants to go into this, there's places around the country where you go in, they put you under general anesthesia, and then stop your, stop your narcotics cold while you're under general anesthesia, and when you wake up, you're narcotic free after three days. A little bit dangerous, and hasn't worked for my patients. They're right back on opiates. So I don't do that. We talked about doing it, and we originally had some patients who went through trials of it, didn't seem to work. So we taper people slowly, and while we're tapering them, we make them do stuff. Great. Thank you very much. Appreciate Thank you. Thanks for inviting me back, everybody. I really appreciate it.